So this evening I would uh, like to uh, speak to you about uh, Diana, Princess of Wales. And in the flow of this uh, talk uh, with you, I would like to draw from the memorable Panorama television, BBC television interview uh, with her in November of 95. Uh, some uh, responses that I uh, personally had over the period of the last uh, two years, which uh, include some uh, letters which I wrote to the uh, princess, and to include some uh, uh, reflections not only on the personal here, but also on the larger uh, vision of of things as um, much as I can. And today, various times during today, perhaps I've been reminded of the uh, life and times of, the, of uh, Princess Diana, and particularly it being the funeral today, and at this time, about 10 o'clock in the evening, the many millions who line the, the streets, who watched the funeral procession, who laid the flowers, will have uh, made their journey home with their hearts and their thoughts of what mm. here and for others as well has been a significant day. If press reports are to be believed that more than two billion people around the world uh, watch the funeral, the funeral of a woman who was certainly the most photographed woman in history, certainly the most talked about woman in history, certainly the most written about woman in history, and in the space of less than 20 years, created, we created, the press created, the commentators created, the television, the media created a, a, a superstar out of extraordinary projections, movements of the mind, fairy tale stories, and all that went along with it. And I think there are many, many, many lessons to be learnt in this about the way that we relate to people who enter into our life with a huge degree of name and fame which is projected upon them and they are elevated into a kind of metaphysical status quite removed from their humanity. And to a large degree, all the circumstances, Princess Diana was on the receiving end of that in a way which is almost unimaginable what it must have been like to cope with. And that is certainly reflected in the life, in the story, and in things which she uh, spoke about in the uh, Panorama interview. 
If I may say a uh, little bit for my own uh, background and, and interest uh, here, that uh, Princess Diana first came to worldwide public attention in July of 1981 when she married Prince Charles at St. Paul's Cathedral and at that time the huge hype made about her, him, and again this idealized marriage. The month also has some poignancy for myself because my daughter was born in July 1981. So while all the hype was going on around, we were attending to something which was far more and important to us and that was the, the arrival of our daughter. And in part of the fairy tale projection that took place, one was that Diana Spencer was a kindergarten teacher who went to uh, somebody's home and by chance met Prince Charles they fell in love, she was 18, he was, in his, he was about 29, they got engaged and they got married to live happily ever after. And it creates a, mo a monster of a myth right from the beginning. <coughs> Firstly, with uh, Diana herself, on the wedding day, her father made a statement to the press that he and his family for 22 consecutive generations since the 16th century had served, as he said, king and country. They belonged and were part of the establishment, had this uh, great hall, Althorpe House in uh, Northamptonshire, and were connected through from Charles II, through numerous royal families, from one parent to the next parent, close friends with the royal, royal family. In the very chapel at the home by the estate, 22 generations of them are buried. The Spencers were connected to the Roosevelts. The Spencers were connected to William Churchill, the war leader, the former Prime Minister. Churchill's, it's, Winst, Win, it's um, Winston Spencer Churchill. So this was a family that moved in these circles of privilege. It wasn't a kindergarten teacher. But many of the pictures showed in 1980 to 81 as a kindergarten teacher her living in a flat with her th three friends in uh, somewhere in London with a very small uh, metro uh, car take working as a nanny for five, three pound or five pound uh, an hour and something even in the kind of 18, 19 tender age was trying to find herself despite a difficult and painful upbringing 
and her friend said that beside her bed in her, in her flat, in her apartment, she had a, a photograph of Prince Charles, when, who she had met first time at 16, and her friends were joking with her, oh, you've got a crush on Charlie. She said, no, 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 no. But events rolled by, and I, one of the thoughts, two of the thoughts that stick in my mind from 1981 of, of the wedding, um, and one which, uh, in the midst of all of this, whether it was, uh, it may, well, now one might say it had some accuracy, but the thought that arose in my mind when I watched the, the wedding was pretty well accurately what I thought was, this is doomed to disaster. It's doomed. It's too out there. It's too big a projection. It's too much the fairy tale, wonderful romance. It's just too damn good to be true. At the very time to reflect on the terrible anguish of Princess Diana, just before Charles had gone off on a trip to Australia and on British television a very famous scene in history as it were was recorded of Charles getting on the aeroplane and she waving him goodbye and she's crying and what was put out that she was crying because he was going to Australia and she wouldn't see his fiance. What emerged from what she told her friend, she was crying because she knew Charles didn't love her and he loved Camilla Parker Bowles. And he had a, uh, had a photograph in his wallet of her and she found it. And she knew that the love wasn't there in terms of being in love with her. And when the cameras said to him and her as they hugged each other on their engagement day, do you love him? She said something like, yes, I'm in love with him. When they asked him, he, he said, yes, whatever that means. Can you imagine the impact on a 19-year-old girl, a virgin, no experience with men, plucked out of the aristocracy to so he could sow his seed in to produce an, uh, the next heir. And he says, whatever love, whatever that means. When you see old films of the wedding, you'll see a man on the, beside the carriage in which Charles and Diana are sitting right after the wedding and they're waving and smiling and she hoping and believing that he would come to love her and be in love with her. And who's riding on the horse beside the carriage? The husband of Camilla Parker Bowles. Even on the wedding day, this poor teenager, 20 years old, she was born in July 1961, had the shadow right from the very beginning. Is it surprising 
the distress, the anguish, the anxiety just started there. And even though there was love between them, nevertheless there was the gap and where one knows one isn't loved, the consequences come. In the panorama in interview of this uh, young woman, he says, he, she's a, he's asked, um, uh, a year later, the, ba the first child, William, was, was born. She says, maybe I was the first person ever to be in this position who ever had a depression or was openly tearful and obviously that was daunting because if you've never seen it before, how do you support it? What effect did the depression have on your marriage? Well, it gave everybody a wonderful new label. Diana's unstable and Diana's mentally unbalanced and unfortunately that seems to have stuck on and off over the years. It's said in press reports that things became so difficult that you actually tried to injure yourself. Mm. When no one listens to you, or you feel that no one's listening to you, all sorts of things start to happen. For instance, you have so much pain inside yourself that you try and hurt yourself on the outside because you want help, but it's the wrong help you're asking for. People see it as crying wolf or attention-seeking, and they think, because you're in the media all the time, you've got enough attention, inverted commas. But I was actually crying out because I wanted to get better in order to go forward and continue my duty and my role as wife, mother, Princess of Wales. So I did inflict upon myself. I didn't like myself. I was ashamed because I couldn't cope with the pressures. Remember, she's 21 years old. What did you actually do? Well, I just hurt my arms and my legs and I work in environments now where I see women doing similar things and I'm able to understand completely where they're coming from. What was your husband's reaction to this when you began to injure yourself in this way? Well, I didn't actually always do it in front of him, but obviously anyone who loves someone would be very concerned about it. Did he understand what was behind the physical act of hurting yourself, do you think? No, but then not many people would have taken the time to see that. And she then goes on to in terms of speaking about the uh, uh, bulimia. Yes, I, d I had bulimia for a number of years, and that's like a secret disease. You inflict it upon yourself because your self-esteem is at a low ebb, and you don't think you're worthy or valuable. You fill your stomach up four or five times a day. Some do it more, and it gives you a feeling of comfort. It's like having a pair of arms around you, but it's temporary. Then you're disgusted at the bloatedness of your stomach, and then you bring it all up again. And it's a repetitive pattern, which is very destructive to, to yourself. I was crying out for help, but giving the wrong signals, and people were using my bulimia as a coat on a hanger that they decided that was the problem. Diana was unstable. And the whole sequence of events, so after um, this uh, um, uh, lengthy uh, 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 interview with her and her reference to um, 
um, uh, um, um, Camilla Parker Bowles, who later on she was very charitable towards, he w she was asked, do you think Mrs. Parker Bowles was a factor in the m breakdown of your marriage? And then she made this very famous statement. Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. <laughs> <laughs> and I, um, if I may say, I, um, uh, I wrote to her, after I watched this um, interview, uh, along with um, 22 million others in this country, it uh, took my uh, uh, breath away. And of the, I think one almost would have to be English to understand the significance of that. that it was absolutely unheard of in the land of the stiff upper lip for someone to come out and speak from the heart. When one's lived uh, in a, an environment of the establishment who do not show their feelings, who always keep their face straight, and who do not allow the inner life to get revealed outwardly. And that's been a long-standing tradition of this uh, uh, particular culture. It was as contrast as night to day in this particular uh, in interview with her. It I, to me, in terms of the establishment and uh, what mattered, it, it changed things around dramatically. High-risk strategy on her part easily could be accused of wanting more attention, easily using the media to gain sympathy, to be regarded as a victim, etc. It could easily have backfired. Yet something came through, and, and I think it's been very characteristic of the tremendous number of women who have expressed incredible appreciation to Diana because they could empathise with her. The number of young teenage uh, women who saw Diana as uh, the superstar, the model of loving kindness, the uh, independent spirit. She's been a major reference point for countless young women, which they kind of aspire to in one way, and love and somewhat adore because of this willingness to beat the heart. And so I, I um, wrote to her, but I also, and I also have little extra knowledge because when I was um, in the uh, early 1990s, I uh, read practically every biography on the royals that I could get my hand on. And the um, motive uh, behind this was, and it's not an advertisement for my book, I'll quickly add here. Um, I um, wrote a chapter um, compare, um, on Prince Charles. And so I looked at the biographies and read the newspapers, collected numerous uh, cuttings, and through that process, to some degree, I think, got um, try to get reasonably uh, well informed with regard to uh, the situation of the royals. And when I sent um, uh, Charles um, a letter uh, and a copy uh, uh, of the book, I, uh, which I have amongst these papers here, I um, said, to, said to him in the, in the letter that the title of the chapter, as it was, Prince Siddhartha, the Buddha, and Prince Charles. And it was a, it was a comparison, Charles with his interest 
in environmental issues, literacy, architecture, right livelihood, support for the uh, unemployed, environmental global awareness. Is something, there is something, I think, genuinely thoughtful which is there. And I did this chapter, Prince Siddhartha and Prince Charles, and I said in the letter to Charles, believe me, you'll never get a greater compliment. <laughs> and <laughs> I got the... I meant it. And I sent a copy of it also to Jonathan Porritt, whose close personal friend and advisor to Charles, some of us here know, uh, I've uh, met with uh, Jonathan Porritt a number of occasions, I've interviewed him for one of my books, and in the closure of the chapter on Charles, I'll, I'll, I'll read, read my conclusion. Um, like Prince Siddhartha, Prince Charles must forget his so-called royal blood, his loyalty to the Queen, his staggering wealth, the expectations of his advisers, and the wall of conformity that imprisons him. He must see the emptiness of upholding the charade of believing his national duty is to become King of Britain. Just Charles must renounce his right to the throne and the suffocating responsibilities that accompany it. In 1936, his great uncle, King Edward VIII, renounced the throne out of love for Mrs. Wallace Simpson, an American woman. In his message to the nation and the world, wide British Commonwealth that, that then covered a fifth of the earth, King Edward said he had made, quote, an irrevocable determination to renounce the throne for myself and for my descendants, end quote. When his gr great uncle Edward made the decision out of love for a woman, there was a public outcry. Charles must renounce the throne for himself and his descendants out of love for those causes which touch his heart. He can then give full rein to his intuition and awareness. If he shakes off the curse of his birth, Charles can enter the path to an enlightened life for which Siddhartha sets an historical precedent. Such a step by Prince Charles would free him from the perpetuation of the royal soap opera and the associated morass of lies and deceptions dished out to the public. If Charles renounces the throne and all of his titles, it could become a turning point in the fortunes of Britain with beneficial reverberations for humanity and the earth. <laughs> I didn't get a reply to my letter. <laughs> his secretary did write and uh, uh, send me um, uh, uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote to Princess Diana after watching the uh, interview and in the letter I said to Princess Diana, along with millions of others I watched italics the interview, quite something. Your compassion for others came through. Bulimia, the other woman, the abusive pressures upon you, the betrayal of trust by an intimate friend or lover, you brought a tear to my eyes. Uh, after watching the program and listening to the endless analysis late Monday night and the following day, I thought I would write to respond to perhaps the most significant state statement I heard from you. 
and she said, the biggest disease this world suffers from is the disease of people feeling unloved. I know that I can give love for a minute, for half an hour, for a day, for a month, and I want to do that. And I said, Your presence, in my reply, probably begins with the ritual of the royal handshake, but the heart of the matter rests in the brief exchange with those in need, if not in crisis, and your time with those who serve people in need. But it would be all too easy for verbal pleasantries to dominate. Your capacity for heartfelt and insightful communication expresses the quintessence of a meaningful role. On many occasions, you have a matter of minutes or less to register deeply your perceptions with others. Your words can make a lifelong difference to those in your presence, long, long after the warmth of your visit has faded. With your heart already in the right place, it requires sensing the general and the detail of what you pick up from others and your immediate response to it. Every word counts so that it can touch a deep place inside a human being. It is the wisdom of the heart that matters. And I went on. And the following day, the defenders of the faith were out in force. Nicholas Soames, close friend of Prince Charles, describing her as being paranoid. Jonathan Porritt dropped the word. So I uh, wrote to Jonathan uh, Porritt and, uh, after the interview, and then I said, I watched the interview with Princess Diana, the analysis afterwards on BBC television, and your comments on the Panorama interview on the lunchtime BBC TV news the following day. I appreciate your wish to stay loyal to Prince Charles and his advisers, but loyalty is no substitute for understanding. During the news interview, you dropped the word paranoia, albeit briefly into the public mind. I didn't pick up signals of paranoia at all. Princess Diana felt misunderstood and judged. Some people in the royal household have shown neither respect nor understanding of her immensely difficult situation. Public comments of friends of Charles immediately confirmed what she expressed in the interview. Her voice needs to be heard, not undermined. Please bring whatever influence you have to bear on the advisors to Prince Charles. There is the potential for Princess Diana to provide a remarkable service to humanity. Her heart is also in the right place. I've also written a letter to Nicholas Soames, whose comments and hostile attitude on BBC television were simply unacceptable, quote-unquote, advanced stages of paranoia, etc., etc. If he is a gentleman, he will certainly write her a public note of apology. Which he didn't, because he wouldn't. Because he's so thick. <laughs> and so, I, during the time, after this interview, as you can probably sense, there was a mild conversion of Christopher to the um, uh, life and times of, uh, of, uh, Di of uh, Diana. And, and all the word which seems to 
surfaced around a lot with regard to her. Apart from the heartfulness and her dedication towards um, people with AIDS and the touching and holding of them, it was revolutionary when she was uh, doing that. Um, the mine uh, fields and the campaign this year uh, with regard to the anti-personnel mines, her work towards um, the upliftment of uh, handicapped children and people with cancer, etc., alongside this complexity of personality, uh, all the influence taking place of uh, the pressures, the tensions there. She says in, in here, and just it doesn't bear, hardly bears thinking about what, 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 what it must be like for her. She says, how do you feel about the way the press behaves towards you now? I still to this day find the interest daunting and phenomenal because I actually don't like being the centre of attention. When I have my public duties, I understand that when I get out the car, out of the car, I'm being photographed. But actually it's now, when I go out of my door, my front door, I'm being photographed. I never know where a lens is going to be. A normal day would be followed by four cars. A normal day would come back to my car and find six freelance photographers jumping around me. Some would say, well, if you had a policeman, it would make it easier. It doesn't at all. They d decided that I'm still a product after 15 to 16 years that sells well. And they all shout at me, telling me that, oh, come on, die, look up. If you give us a photograph, I can get my children to a better school. And you know, you can laugh it off, but you get that the whole time, it's quite difficult. So one can imagine the pressure which took place to an unparalleled degree uh, with her. And I think with that kind of pressure on the emotional life, the thinking life, the lifestyle, is it any wonder all the outflows and the consequences uh, of, of what took of what took place. And in the, um, I mean, there are many other aspects uh, to this. And the feeling and the thought that I had, and others may have done as well uh, with her, that in her falling in love, in her finding this close intimacy and uh, 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 connection as she did with. Uh, 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 Dodi uh, Al-Fayed. Something else happened as well in all, all of this, which is part of my kind of uh, uh, reflection. And what I mean, mean by that is that she went through these very difficult years, massive attention, but where she would have loved it most, with her husband, it simply wasn't happening in the way that she would have liked. She said many times we would have made a great team, which they would have done if they had been in love. And baking the steps, and in, in as you can see, when I received the last letter, made it, made it, this is from Viscountess uh, Cam Camden. You may not be able to see here. Here's from St. Um, uh, James's Palace, the earlier letters. And this one, because they dropped her royal title, HRH, Her Royal Highness, uh, which all the consequences uh, of that. And there she's got the crown at the top of her headed note paper, 
with a big capital D under it. I thought, I bet that irritated them. <laughs> and it was over th over further kind of demonstrations of her independence and wishing to find her own and not being afraid to upset, I may be wrong in this of course, upset, her, upset the uh, uh, establishment. And in this finding of love, and I think it's an important one of the other many messages that take, take place, in this finding of love, after what struck me in terms of the crash and the death, that after all of these years of having to be incredibly vigilant with the, the protection and um, the, the bodyguards, the armoured vehicles, the making the safe journeys from A to B because of the media, because of possible terrorism, IRA, or whatever the fears uh, would be. And the vigilance and the mindfulness that was required for all of that. And then, as it so easily happens in life, in this case, the falling in love or the finding of a partner, all the reports are of feeling so much more happy in herself and then handing over, in a way, the responsibility or the intuitiveness or the instinct or whatever to her partner, to, uh, as it were, others who were not directly connected uh, uh, with her. And therefore, the Ritz Hotel, uh, the chauffeur, the bodyguards of that, of that uh, family, the owners, the fayads there, and just one, whatever, misperception, one lowering of the guard, one handing over the responsibility, or whatever. There must have been signals, in, I'm sure, signals inside of her that something was uneasy with the, with the, with the driver or with the speed of the car. There must have been some, some signals. And trusting, allowing. And then the very movement of it, of course, it's the, 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 the tragedy of a situation of somebody's life, and not unusual, forming and finally coming together. One actually had the feeling that Diana had a focus this year. The Panorama interview, the visit to Angola, the visit to Bosnia, the uh, focus uh, of that, the personal life was coming together, completely, of course, devoted in conviction with the children, all coming together, the journey is being made, she's finally, her act's getting together, and then none of us, perhaps, recognising in that the highest vulnerability as well. And she's dead. And the life has gone out. In, in the Earlier this um, uh, year, uh, I watched in February the uh, um, Angola, um, the documentary which she made to um, pub publicise the visit to um, uh, Angola. And as I mentioned to you earlier in, in, in the, the talk, I'd just like to uh, read this. And a, a I just may, may add a, just a little bit more. On um, September the 18th, I 
fly to Washington, D.C., uh, U.S., um, with regard to the Cambodian uh, situation. I'm a member of the International Board of the Buddhist uh, Peace Fellowship. I'm going in that uh, capacity. And Tan Maha Goshananda, he is a fellow member of the same Peace Board. He's, the, uh, he's a patriarch of Cambodia. He's a dear friend of mine, very dear friend of mine, who we spent four years, nearly four years in the same monastery together. We know each other very well. He's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize five times, and he says, the only reason they're nomi nominating me is because I'm doing walking meditation in my own country. means he walks across Cambodia every May to bring the world's attention to the plight of Cambodia and to the situation. And so I wrote to Princess Diana and I said, uh, and as I mentioned in the talk earlier this evening, I uh, witnessed men, women and children carried into the hospital, this is in Nakhon Si Tamrat in Thailand, within, within minutes or an hour or so of losing their limbs from anti-personnel mines. Some of the anti-personnel mines were homemade gunpowder and nails packed in a cocoa tin and buried on tracks intended for the military. The abbot sent me to the hospital to offer kindness and to test my steadiness in witnessing acute suffering. Such recollections do not fade. In the same monastery lived Mahagoshananda, now thrice no, uh, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Venerable Goshananda lost all 17 of his close relatives during the Holocaust in Cambodia between 1975 to 79. He's now the Patriarch of Cambodia. Every May he leads across his country a Dharma Yatra. In the Buddhist tradition, Dharma means spiritual teachings, concerned with liberation. Yatra means walk or pilgrimage. He told me, I tell the soldiers to kill the hate inside of themselves. I tell the children to tell their fathers to kill the hate inside of themselves. I tell the parents of the soldiers to tell their sons to kill the hate inside of themselves. Venerable Goshananda is remarkably cheerful, naturally eccentric, and working daily to establish peace and harmony for his people. Cambodia is covered in four million landmines. There are 30,000 amputees in Cambodia. In one province alone, 1,832 people, including 356 children, have died from landmines between January 1995 to January 1997. Your visit to Angola energizes the movement worldwide in its campaign against anti-personnel mines and the arms trade in general. As you know, there are some very brave people who care for the welfare and safety of rural families. They are prepared to go step by step, brackets the title of Venerable Goshananda's book, to clear areas of landmines. Others do incredible work treating victims. Like yourself, others give support, love, and, and campaign. And uh, so it went on. And the reason for this visit to uh, Washington, just four, four days, is because recently, in recent weeks, the conflict in Cambodia has started up yet again. And all the difficulties of, of potential for civil war. So the intention is that from the uh, meetings, 
um, in uh, Washington, hopefully to increase once again public awareness so that the UN and international authorities, etc., actually do something. So, Venerable Mahagoshananda, and it is hoped uh, Jimmy Carter and others, and uh, myself, that were intentioned to create a, a documentary, to have a roundtable peace meeting, and in a very small but hopefully important way, continue the same kind of work that Princess Diana has been trying to continue and sustain, and that is public awareness to put immense pressure on every government to agree to ending this of the obscenity of these landmines. All, all of this I, I speak of in, in, in context of how voices for change make a difference. All of it spoken in, the, in that kind of context. And I think just in conclusion, one or two of the uh, other lessons here is that in the environment and culture that we uh, live in, not only in the US and its uh, uh, mania around Hollywood stars and, and so forth, but as a worldwide phenomena, we need to look very, very carefully at this tendency towards creation of mega-heroes, mega-stars. There is an acute determination, A, to project them, and then to assassinate them, to build them up and to knock them down. And there's a kind of, a kind of abuse of communication and relationship between people. And we don't, don't know or don't realize what we do. And when I was in New York in, um, um, in April, I met a friend of mine who's a uh, um, uh, television and film actress. And she worked in, uh, worked in Sweden for uh, many, many years. And she was explaining to me the contrast where in Sweden she's an actress, as somebody else has their particular uh, profession, and very little hype going along with it. That was her work, that was her career. And now coming to be in America, and working as uh, an actress there, the hype, because she's late 20s, uh, extremely beautiful, very uh, uh, present, good friend of, as well of the, the Dharma, and just gradually the build-up starts to take place. And she beginning to feel more and more uncomfortable with the kind of attention that's being directed her way, and the way that it's being directed, and what's being written about her, etc., etc. And they use it as a Example for us to be that one of the lessons that we do people no service by building up heroes and heroines. Secondly, and one of the lessons that we have to learn from all, all of this is that love, in its very human form, as Prince Di Diana was expressing with uh, Dodi, still requires continuity of clarity, a great deal of wisdom and an enormous vigilance to be able to say yes and no. And perhaps somewhere in Dai's excitement of things, she lost attention to uh, all of that. And the other, uh, on the, the scale of things in terms of expansion of, of, of things, I think there's a, 
an importance for us to reflect, as I said in the talk this evening, on, on the general understanding and vision of what it means to be in this world and to look at the mystery of it. To look at this, there's the story, to get behind the story and sense the mystery of it all. The, res- the mystery of the public response, the mystery of the difficulties of the royals with it, the mystery of our own interest and focus that accompanies it, the lessons that can come out of it in terms of what do we come away with out of this week. And perhaps somewhere or another, in some way or other, Princess Diana's death might contribute to awakening, might just contribute to greater awakening and a more reflective, inquiring and concerned culture and society. Or it might not, and society goes back to sleep again. Let's have one or two quiet minutes together, shall we please? May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.